Thank you, ladies. Thank you for that wonderful piece of church history. And thank you, Warren, for your piece of church history. And thank you for making these folks sing one of Charles Wesley's finest. You cannot improve upon those wonderful old 18th century hymns. Maybe we should sing some Isaac Watts, too, from time to time, as well as uh, Brother Wesley. And yes, thank you for that wonderful piece of church history. In fact, the country that I'm going to ask you to pray for, that I'm going to bring to your attention, has, oh my, does it have an ancient and colorful history, and I'm probably fairly certain that that piece of music was sang in ancient times in the country that I'm going to mention here shortly. Good morning to everybody, and good morning to everyone watching. God bless you. Hope you had a wonderful week. Thank you for watching and listening, in particular our international visitors that have been with us for quite some time, and of course you folks in the various states who keep up with us every week. The country that I want you to uh, pray for this week will always, but as we work our way through the Voice of the Martyrs prayer guide, is, as I mentioned before, an ancient land with an absolutely wonderful history, troubled history, but ancient history, and that is Tunisia in northern Africa. According to Voice of the Martyrs, Tunisia is restricted. Tunisia has a rich Christian history. It produced the notable early church fathers Tertullian and Cyprian, and the early Christian martyrs Perpetua and Felicity. The Third Council of Carthage ratified the New Testament canon, that is, the books that would be accepted as the inspired Word of God that would make up the New Testament. Ratified the New Testament canon in Tunisia in AD 397. However, today Christians make up less than 1% of the population. <clears throat> Since the Arab Spring Uprising, which began in Tunisia, the country has become increasingly democratic, becoming the first government in northern Africa to actually seek and protect, uh, seek to protect religious freedom. But even with a rich Christian history and increased religious freedom, the gospel is opposed by many Muslims and has been slow to take root in modern Tunisia. Most Tunisians are Sunni Muslims. Christian converts from Islam experience persecution from their communities, their family members, and co-workers, as you can imagine. The government is still learning how to properly protect religious freedom in a culture that is dominated by Islam. Although it is illegal for families to persecute family members who leave Islam, of course it still happens. If parents report a child who has become a Christian, uh, police may arrest the child out of habit, even though changing religions is no longer illegal in the country. Churches function openly and Christian converts from Islam are free to worship in them. However, open evangelism or proselytizing remains illegal, oddly enough. In remote areas, severe persecution continues. Muslim families feel ashamed or offended by family members who, who leave Islam. Bibles have been available in the past, but the last Christian bookstore in the country has regrettably closed. It is possible, though, to distribute numbers of Bibles and ship Bibles with official permission. Voice of the Martyrs supports training and resources for frontline workers. So please pray for our brothers and sisters who are in Tunisia. And of course, as it is the first uh, Sunday of the month, we are commemorating and celebrating the Lord's table today. 
very special time in the life of the church and in any believer's life. So I hope and pray and trust that you folks have prepared yourselves to come to the Lord's table as the apostles encourage us to do. With, by the way, I'm sorry to you folks watching and listening. You can't see that sweet little guy's face on the screen. How about that? I like that little guy or gal. In fact, there's a few, few little rascals across the road from us that look just like him. <laughs> we, we enjoy them very much. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, thank you for those who have gathered here to hear you speak to them out of your word by way of our blessed big brother, the Apostle Paul. I pray for everyone here for the prayer requests that have been mentioned, for the healing of everyone, for their physical well-being, most of all for their spiritual well-being. Draw them to you, O sovereign God, in ways that you know best and which are perfect for your plan for their life and their place in the body of Christ, in your kingdom, in your church. We thank you for Communion Sunday. We thank you for this table and what this table represents in our past and in our future the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ and what he accomplished by divine plan upon our behalf. We pray for our brothers and sisters in Tunisia. We rejoice in that religious freedom is coming to that country, and we rejoice that the gospel is spreading once again in that country which first knew Christianity well nigh two millennia ago. We pray for our brothers and sisters there that you would protect them from persecution and from harm. And we pray that the distribution of the Word of God will become more read, readily available to them. That churches will thrive, that will grow, will prosper. And that the gospel of Jesus Christ will once more be powerfully proclaimed and accepted and work in that ancient land. Please hear our prayers upon their behalf and in behalf of everyone who is suffering for the name of of the Lord Jesus Christ the world over. And I pray for our brother in Canada, pastor in the local church there, who was arrested and jailed for keeping his church open to worship and to preach the gospel. I pray that your perfect will will be done in and through this man and his wife and his family and their church, and they will be a powerful witness and influence the world over as this is becoming international news. He will stand strong and tall and be faithful to you and that the body of pride of Christ and those who love freedom and liberty will rally around him. May your perfect will be done in this situation and circumstance. And I pray for all of our listeners in the six, seven or eight states who've been watching and folks from India, Pakistan, Philippines and in Canada and I know I'm forgetting a few nations, Lord. Please forgive me. We're so happy and delighted that folks about the world, not only in our own community or even in our own country, but internationally have been joining us to receive the truth of your word. And wherever your word goes, we pray that it will change the hearts, minds, and souls and lives of many, many people. Bless us this morning as we listen to our brother's inspired words about the conduct in a Christian home, particularly the relationships between fathers or parents and their children, and help those who hear these words translate these words into action in their life. May everything that is said and done here this morning bring praise and honor and glory to you, and may it all reverberate in the kingdom in eternity. 
In the sacred and holy name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Would you stand, please, for the reading of the word of the Lord? Our exploration through the last chapter of Paul's letter to the brothers and sisters in Ephesus. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. One verse this morning, folks. Pardon me, it's been, a, it's been difficult sometimes on Sunday mornings to divide the text. Um, so uh, I thank you for your patience. I thought we would, should just stay with fathers or parents and children this morning and then cleanly work into masters and, and their slaves. Um, very interesting passage next week. And then we proceed, of course, on to the master passage of the New Testament in spiritual warfare. Today, we, um, we're approaching the end of the household codes, at least with the nuclear family, immediate family members. Ephesians 6, 4. And fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. These are the words of the Lord. Thanks be to God for them. Thank you. you may be seated. Thank you. So, instructions for fathers, or I would put it in parentheses, parents, because mother is certainly to a, an appreciable degree uh, included here. She is certainly not excluded, but yes, Paul does specify fathers, and I'll explain um, why shortly. So today, of course, we continue on with Paul's inspired instructions for Christian families, Christian households. And today we proceed, obviously, with instructions for for fathers, in particular for parents, although again it's interesting that the father here is specifically mentioned. Paul warns them not to treat their children in a manner in which they will be provoked to become angry or enraged or embittered or be driven to despair. Uh, those of you who have uh, the English Standard Version Study Bible, uh, bring your attention to uh, very nice comment in entering this part of the text on their textual note in the ESV Study Bible. Quote, Paul begins his admonition here with a negative action to avoid, followed by a positive action to develop. That is a wonderful insight. And you find this over and over and over in the Scripture, in particular from, from the Lord Jesus Christ Himself and from the Apostles. They will give you how not to live, what not to do, conduct or behavior to avoid, but then they will not leave you in a vacuum. They will not leave you in a void. They will give you right conduct or right behavior or right belief to replace the bad, the sinful, the regrettable, or the old. So, and this is a classic example. Paul gives instructions for parents, for fathers in particular, what not to do, if you will, but then he immediately gives you, well, this is what you should be doing. This is not the way <laughs> to nurture and raise a child. This is the way, the Lord's way, the preferred way, the Christian way to raise and nurture and bring up a child. So verse 4, let's unpack this first remark, this first phrase. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Uh, I know we have <laughs> various translations in the room. Uh, traditionally, this, this first phrase of the verse is translated as, Fathers, do not 
provoke your children to anger. Do not provoke your children to wrath. And some of the more uh, arcane or older translations, both are correct. So what about this? First of all, what about this focusing on the man, the father? What's this about? Doesn't the mother matter? Well, yes, obviously, obviously she does. Of course she does. And we can come to that conclusion on our own by the household codes that we have studied so far in dealing with wives and husbands. Of course mama matters. Obviously she does. So can one arguably apply these instructions for both parents, mother and father, even though Paul does not specifically mention the mother? Yes, I believe you can. However, it is interesting that Paul specifically addresses the father. Now, why is that? The answer to that is really rather simple. If you've been paying close attention to the household codes that we have been studying thus far, you can come to the conclusion on your own why Paul specifically singles out the father here. The answer is really rather simple. By doing this, Paul is simply recognizing or stressing or, or reminding us of the God-given responsibility of leadership to the father in the home as father and as husband. He's reminding us, he's reminding fathers of the father's God-given responsibility and leadership role in the home to be the spiritual leader in the home and to be a good husband, properly agape loving his wife, and in this case, properly caring for, nurturing, instructing, educating, and training his children. I think also, to an appreciable degree, Paul is saying, uh, Fathers, pay attention, you're not off the hook. You don't fob off the care and instruction of your children all onto mother. Or with wealthier families of the time period, onto the slaves, onto the servants, onto the nannies, if you will, or extended family members. Fathers, you are not to check out or abdicate your duty and your responsibility, not only to your wives, but to your children in raising them as Christians, loyal to Christ in a Christian household. I think that's why he singles out fathers here, those, those reasons mentioned. But let me stress again, he's reminding us of the father's ultimate responsibility as a spiritual leader in the home for everyone in the home. Mrs., the children, anybody that is under your roof. In the first century AD, he includes, of course, the servants or the slaves, because even if you were not a wealthy family of, of considerable means, many families in the first century AD had large numbers of people potentially living in their household or on their property, rich, poor, and everybody in between, with family members, extended family members, friends, and yes, even servants or slaves. And it's uh, very will sound very bizarre for you folks in the 21st century. And I'll explain more of this, of course, next week. But in uh, slavery during the Roman Empire, sometimes slaves owned their own slaves, thus increasing the number of extended quote-unquote family members or dependents in a family, in a household. So. Perhaps um, also because in, in, in many cultures, then and now, and I feel I have to repeat that numerous times, because not only uh, should I describe for you the culture 
of the first century A.D. in which Paul wrote this letter. But folks, many aspects of that culture at that time, though 2,000 years old, is still alive and well in some country or nation or culture the world over, even, even to, the, to this day. So in many cultures then and now, the father had, the father has great power over the family, over the children, and power that, of course, could easily be abused. And in ancient uh, Jewish, in an ancient Greco-Roman society, the fathers were most certainly ultimately responsible. In the eyes of the law, they were even legally responsible for the discipline and education, etc., of their children. And as I mentioned just a moment ago, that's still the case today in certain locations around the world. It's interesting to observe that this command, this admonition as we traditionally refer to it, is not found in the Old Testament. And it does not appear anywhere else in any known ancient literature outside of the Bible that we're aware of. So, what should we conclude from that? When this was first written, these instructions must have come as something of a surprise to the folks who are receiving these instructions. I think they've come as a surprise to people the world over for the past 2,000 years, and they still do. Now, one in the first century A.D., and yes, somewhere around the world even now, you would have expected in household codes, instructions, parental instructions, you would have expected for Paul to have said exactly the opposite of what he says. Let's take this back to the first uh, audience receiving this letter, the Ephesians. They would have expected Paul to have said exactly the opposite of what he writes. They would have expected him to say, Children, do not provoke Father. He says exactly the opposite. That would have been something radical or unsettling to families at that time. Not Paul, who's inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, never forget. Not here, not in these inspired instructions for a Christian home. Fathers, do not provoke your children. That's what Paul writes. So Paul clearly states that the fathers, and yes, parentheses, let's include mothers, parents, need to exercise a certain care. That's what he's saying. They need to exercise a certain care, a certain awareness, and how they respond or how they interact with their children as that child is growing up in their household. Right? They are not to be bullies or tyrants. Oh, that meant a big deal in the first century A.D. Because Greco-Roman fathers were expected to be something of a tyrant in and over their home. They were, remember, the paterfamilias, who practiced according to Roman law, patria potestas, absolute authority over everyone under his roof, even to the point of life or death. And Paul is really changing things here. His instructions from the Lord. No one in a Christian home, husband or mother, or anyone, is to be a bully or is to be a tyrant. No bullies, no tyrants in a Christian home. That's the pagan way of doing things. Christian principles were to improve and elevate life for absolutely everyone. That is when these principles were actually obeyed and put into practice. They have always historically improved and elevated life for everyone. Man, woman, child, anyone. This also implies, what Paul is writing here, that fathers 
should exercise care, obviously, in how they discipline their children. Now, of course, Paul is not saying that you should never discipline your children. He is not saying that. Let's not go to that extreme. The Bible teaches us, Old Testament, New Testament, to properly discipline our children as training and instruction for all of life. And sacred scripture warns constantly, particularly in the Old Testament, about not disciplining a child. The absolute disastrous results of not disciplining a child. Paul's not saying that. He's saying discipline them, but with care, with restraint. All right? They should exercise care in doing so. Do not discipline children cruelly or hypocritically or arbitrarily. Fathers, yes, mothers as well, should carefully always weigh words and actions. He's saying weigh the impact of what you do, of what you say, of your interaction with your children and how you discipline your children. Always have in mind the impact in dealing with your child. Because obviously what? The good or ill thereof can and will last a lifetime. What is it they, they tell us? And I'm certain to a degree it's true. The formative years of a child from ages one to five, from toddlerhood to five or six years old, which they traditionally have called the formative years, oh my, you can, you can make or break a person in, in those years, in particular parents. The things that we do or say to children at that tender age, it can, it will affect them for the rest of their life. Uh, many commentaries from Christian theologians throughout the years have made very many helpful suggestions. And I like that we had some church history in our music this morning because you know how I feel about history. And a lot of times I like to go back to commentaries that are 1,500 to almost 2,000 years old to find out what some of the ancient theologians who were closer to this culture, what they had to say about the commentary of sacred scripture and how they taught it and taught their um, brothers and sisters and their congregations to adhere to, to Scripture and put its principles to words in their life. And throughout the past 2,000 years. So I'm giving you something of a conflation of advice from those theologians, ancient and not so ancient. Um, this admonition of Paul's can arguably rule out such behaviors as, here's our list, purely reactionary explosions of temper, or what we would call a very bad knee-jerk reaction. Pardon the slang term. Of, of anger or temper, um, cruel, harsh words, really cruel or cutting comments to a child. And of course, yeah, I believe kids need a good spanking. But obviously, of course, nothing that is truly, legitimately any type of physical harm or abuse, obviously. Uh, bitter insults. Sarcastic remarks, chronic nagging and complaining, a purposeful demeaning remarks to, to as we would say, browbeat or, or demean a child, cruel or bitter jesting or an unfeeling uh, teasing at a, at a child's expense, unreasonable demands that the parent knows the kid cannot make and places those demands upon them anyway. Something of a, as we say, a never can be pleased attitude. And of course, I think this is very important. 
One theologian in particular made a very important point. Hmm. And of course, a parent should not project their own faults, failures, and bitterness onto the child. Very interesting, but very, very true. Fathers, parentheses mothers, do not project your own faults, your own failures, and your own bitterness onto that child. Nothing provocative. As Paul clearly says, do not provoke. And the word he uses for provoke in the original Greek is pretty strong. It's parorgizo. Parorgizo is what he uses for provoke. It means to embitter someone, if not to deliberately embitter someone. To fill someone or drive someone to anger or temper. To provoke or instigate wrath or rage. That's what he's saying. So parents, uh, fathers, do not frustrate, do not discourage, do not embitter, do not provoke your children by any cruel, overbearing, or unfair treatment. That's what he's saying. And recall the words of Paul's um, instructions to parents in the household codes that we studied some time ago when we studied the book of Colossians together. He writes to, to parents, to fathers, to husbands in Colossians 3.21, quote, Do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. Actually, the Greek's a little stronger. You could just as arguably translate what Paul writes in Colossians as, Do not drive your children to despair. Do not drive your children to rage or despair. Folks, to drive somebody to despair is a terrible thing, particularly children. Speaking of early church theologians, I will quote ancient theologian John Chrysostom, who had some things to say about this text. He writes, So many parents are guilty of this. They do this by depriving their children, slandering their children, breaking promises, oppressing them with burdens that they cannot bear, and by treating them not as though they were free, but as though they were slaves. End quote. And obviously this man is writing from a culture in which slavery still existed. Now, here's the good behavior. Instead, do this. This is what parents are not to do. This is what parents are to avoid in raising and instructing and training their children. And Paul doesn't leave you hanging with what you should do. He doesn't leave you in a vacuum. He wants you to fill that negative space with a positive. Here it is. Instead, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Or sometimes your translation may say, bring them up in the instruction or admonition and instruction or discipline of the Lord. What's the key here? It's all through the household codes. The key here is of the Lord. Wives, this is to be your life in the home because of Christ. Remember, husbands, this is to be your life in the home amongst your family because of Christ. Children, obey your parents because of Christ. It's all Jesus, God the Son specifically, and particularly, personally, one-on-one. -on -one. As I've said every Sunday morning throughout these household codes, it's all about Jesus, ultimately. The key here is 
of the Lord, in the Lord. It's all about the Lord. Even your relationship to your children and the raising and training and nurturing and rearing of your children is all about Jesus Christ himself, ultimately, personally, of the Lord. So let's pick this apart. So parents, fathers in particular, of course, what's he saying? Saying fathers in particular have the ultimate responsibility of raising and nurturing and training their children. Yes, mothers to play an important part, but dad bears a very important responsibility, obviously, because Paul is singling him out. Fathers, parents, have the ultimate responsibility of raising, nurturing, training their children in such a fashion as to train them in understanding the truths of the faith. That's one of the things that in the Lord or of the Lord means. Train them in the truths of the faith. Biblical Christian truth. The gospel. The person and work of Jesus the Christ. All that he is, all that he means, all that he brings. In other words, how to live the Christian life wisely and well. For Jesus' sake. That's what raising children is all about. In other words, as I like to say, train your children, instruct your children Raise your children to translate these words into action in their life, that they may know Him and glorify Him forever. The purpose for which humanity was made in the first place. And of course, of the Lord. Kyrios in the ancient Greek. That wonderful title meaning absolute sovereign Lord and Master. In this case, divine sovereign Lord and Master. That wonderful title that the inspired New Testament writers give to Jesus all through the New Testament. Obviously a reference to Christ himself. He could have said God, and he would be perfectly correct. But it's interesting, he makes this a little more personal, doesn't he? Specifically, Jesus, the Savior, God the Son, himself, personally. So Paul is saying, it's all ultimately about Jesus, about the Lord. Fathers, parents should be raising up their children to know the Lord personally. To be what? Fit and proper for His kingdom which is coming. That's the point. Parents, fathers, emulate Jesus Christ. Dedicate your children to Christ and bring your children to Christ. And yes, of course, uh, obviously, without too much commentary... It requires a great deal of time. That's a problem, isn't it? It's a problem. Especially it's a problem in the modern world. I get it. I understand it. You know, there was a time, well, let's go back 2,000 years. The time to when Paul wrote this letter. Um, some people worked outside of their home or away from home, and many did not. Many people were around their family members 24-7, around the clock, even at work, making their living. Some left home, many didn't. But what Paul is asking here requires a great deal of time. So especially in the modern world, there's going to have to be some sacrifices made here in order to carry out these instructions to the letter. Of course, what he's asking for is time, uh, attention, great care. Great diligence, great vigilance, and yes, sacrifices as well. It reminds me of uh, 
So I heard something very, very sad uh, back at Cedarville when I was in school. And, uh, this was uh, something that had occurred just recently at the time. And uh, I, we were told by our biblical counseling professor that uh, a friend of theirs that was a biblical counselor in the, the Dayton area was uh, a, a counseling a woman and the subject of her, her children came up. And apparently this woman, just frank and matter of fact as you please, just bald-faced said to this counselor, well, you, you don't get it. You have to understand my children just simply are not the priority. My kids are not the priority right now. And expected or assumed perhaps a, a, an okay or a positive response from that. Well, obviously, there's a lot of that in American culture and society. That's one of the reasons why we're in a big mess. And our families are in a big mess. Um, no, it requires time, attention, vigilance, sacrifice, and yes, priority. And I think uh, these instructions, well, they're going to shake people up these days uh, because, well, of reasons that are all too tragically apparent and obvious in our culture and society. But we have a culture and a society that is self-worshipping, is absolutely obsessed with self-worship and encouraging us all to worship ourselves and be our own little gods in the center of our own little universe. That, that's the antithesis, the complete polar opposite of what Paul is teaching and what sacred scripture teaches and the apostles teach, what Christ teaches. We're not the center of our own universe. Christ is. God is. And we're to sacrifice for one another in a host in, in myriad of ways and place others, friends and family members and our neighbors and our fellow human being, for goodness sake, and most certainly our brothers and sisters in Christ as a priority in our life. Okay? Um, this also means this. Raising up your children... For the Lord's sake. Paul is saying this is ultimately about the Lord, about Christ Himself. Parents should be raising up their children to know the Lord, to be fit and proper for His kingdom. Emulate Christ, fathers, and bring your children to Christ. And yes, time, attention, care, and vigilance sacrifices are required. But this comment also means this. Raise up your children for the Lord's sake, even more than your own. Raise up that child for the sake of Jesus Christ and His kingdom, even more than your own or your family's. He is the chief motivator, and He is the goal. These children are ultimately to be His. They are for Him, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the Creator, Redeemer, God. And so Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, he lays on the shoulders of parents, fathers in particular, a God-given responsibility of raising and nurturing these children to be upright, responsible Christians who know and love the Lord and are loyal to Him, as well as being taught to merely be what we would call what upright, decent, responsible adults. 
Here's the key. If you raise up that child to truly know and love the Lord, then they're going to be an upright, decent adult. It's all going to fall into place if they know Christ. And this will entail or involve, of course, training them and instructing them in the ways of Christ. Train them and instruct them in the ways of the Lord, in the ways of Christ. How are you going to do that? Sacred Scripture. Here again, we come to a rational and logical conclusion of the absolutely indispensable role of sacred Scripture in the life of a family. If you're going to raise them of the Lord, for the Lord, in the ways of the Lord, you're going to have to raise them in this book. Get them in the book and the book into them. That's the way to do it. Sacred Scripture. Saturate the child's life in the truth of He who is the truth and the source of all truth. Fathers, parents, Paul says, are ultimately responsible for the children's spiritual and religious education. Oh my, there's an important point. Does that get me off the hook? Absolutely not. I am to be a teacher and an instructor of the sacred words of God and help people to apply those words to their life. But apparently, I do not bear the ultimate responsibility. The other elders do not bear that ultimate responsibility. The deacons do not bear that ultimate responsibility. That ultimate responsibility for the children's spiritual and religious education is the parents, in particular, the fathers. And we will do everything in our power to lend help and assistance. And of course, that involves more than simply taking them to church and turning them over to somebody else. Or worse yet, taking them to church and dumping them off and turning them over to somebody else. And make sure, parents, that the church you do attend, and you should, that is an order, that is a command, it is a mandate from God Himself, that we all, as believing Christians, are to be active, participating members of a local church. Period. End of story. Make sure that the church you do attend make absolutely certain that that church teaches and defends the truth. Make absolutely certain that church lives the truth, preaches the truth, teaches the truth, and will die for the truth if needs be. Right? Also important point from this phrase, of the Lord. Of the Lord refers to education, instruction, or if you want to use the more arcane word, admonition. Of the Lord refers to the education, instruction, admonition that proceeds from the Lord. The instruction that proceed, proceeds from the Lord. The instruction that is prescribed by the Lord. In other words, sacred scripture. The recorded words of God. The recorded words of Christ himself. You could just as well translate what Paul says this way. Instruction that comes from the Lord. Know your four gospels. And know the remainder of the inspired New Testament. Instruct your children with instruction that comes from Him. His very lips. His mind. His heart. Personally. Uh, let me dig this just, just a little bit deeper. A few more interesting points here. Um, I, I didn't know this until I was doing my word study in the text this week. But Paul uses a word here for instruction that was very powerful for Greco-Roman society in the first century. The word uh, that we traditionally translate as instruction, it's paideia. Paideia. 
in the original Greek. And it's from the Greek word for child, pais. Pais means child. Paideia means instruction or education or training for a child, for children. And that was a very important word. It was a very important concept in the culture, the Greco-Roman society in which Paul wrote the letter. It was a word used for, uh, how do I put it, um, the, the, total, uh, the total comprehensive uh, life training of a child. To prepare a child for all of life, not just putting facts and figures in their head for them to regurgitate for a test. No, this was to train the whole person of a child for all of life. This is what, what traditionally in Western culture a good, well-rounded classical education originally was. It was to educate them and train them and nurture them and cultivate them for living all of life in character and integrity, etc., 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 as well as what we would call book knowledge. Very important concept to those folks. The total training of a child, training for life. One of the words for educator or teacher is paedutes, which could arguably be, uh, Deborah might bear that label, in the Christian Academy. It means a person who is all about the training and instructing or educating of a child, preparing them for life. And to an appreciable degree, that's what teachers in the church are supposed to do for everybody, right? Preparing them for life, the original classical education. Now also this word includes the concept, I like this, this word also includes the concept of being guided, being led, being guided under good, sound discipline and advice and guidance, right? The total education of the child is meant here. So sometimes um, these Greek words, or one or two of these Greek words, are translated as admonition. I know you don't hear that bandied about a lot in the 21st century. Admonition is something of an archaic word. But um, what does the New Testament mean by admonition, or your older translation mean by admonition. Admonition here in reference to the instructing of a child. Well, the word we translate as admonition is nuthesia, from the Greek word nous. I gave you folks this on Tuesday night, our Tuesday night Bible study. The Greek word for mind is nous, N-O-U-S. So Paul uses here nuthesia. For admonition, it has something to do with the mind, with the mind of a child. Nuthasia means good verbal counsel for the mind, warnings that someone will place in their mind so they can translate into action in their life, rebuke or discipline or teaching behavior, the mind. You see what he's saying? Nuthasia, all of these things are poured into a child's mind to prepare them and train them for living all of life. And it makes sense, because what else does Paul say in another one of the most famous verses in the New Testament, Romans 12, 2, Be transformed every day that you live in the spirit of your noose, your mind, that you may truly live the Christian life wisely and well, as you should. Let me give you the New Testament Greek dictionary definition of this word. There's a few interesting things to say here. Quote, 
Paul is speaking about the exertion of influence upon a person's mind. Here, the exertion of influence upon the mind of a child, implying here there may be some resistance to the training or instruction. Influence upon the mind of a child by teaching, by advice, by warning, by correction, by reminding, by testing, and by encouraging or inspiring. By these things, a child can be redirected from wrong ways and behavior, good behavior, molded and corrected. End quote. That's it. That's how you're supposed to raise and rear and instruct your child. This is what Paul instructs fathers to do to their children, for their children, in a wise and understanding way, for the sake of the Lord, with and by way of the Lord's truth. That's what he's saying. There's your recipe for success in parenting. It's interesting that I found this interesting. I think elders and deacons should find this interesting, or Bible study leaders or Sunday school teachers should find this interesting. Paul applies this same type of vocabulary to adults in his other letters. I found that very interesting. Paul, in his, in his other letters, he is inspired by the Spirit to use exactly these same terms on a number of occasions in his New Testament letters to describe the teaching and instructing responsibility that church leaders have to instruct and teach and nurture the members of their church the members of their congregation, their fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. So, uh, I don't like to bring attention to myself, but let me apply it to myself. I am supposed to work on your mind. Practice nuthasia by challenging, warning, correcting, rebuking, teaching, educating, inspiring the Lord's truth and applying it, pouring it into your noose, your mind, that thereby you may know Him personally and glorify Him forever. Your place in His body, His bride, and His kingdom. It's interesting. Paul says church leaders are to do exactly the same thing for the church members in, to a depreciable degree as parents are to instruct and train and nurture their children. I found that fascinating. So, last application of the day. Should be obvious. Fathers, parents, let me give you another quote from this text on a note from the ESV Study Bible. Makes a very important point. Parents play a crucial, God-ordained role in the discipleship of their children in the Lord. I love that point. Train your kids to be disciples. Disciple your children to be disciples of Christ. That's what Paul is saying. Parental discipleship and the discipline and instruction of the Lord should center on the kinds of practices already outlined in Ephesians. In other words, um, the discipline and instruction of the Lord should center on the kinds of truths, the kinds of behaviors, the kinds of practices that Paul has already taught in this letter. And that Paul teaches throughout all of his letters, throughout the remainder of the New Testament. And so parents, fathers, are to raise their children according to the Lord's mandates. 
and are to serve as the Lord's personal agents in the raising and nurturing of the children, raising and nurturing them to belong to the Lord and to serve in His kingdom. There it is. The recipe for success in raising children and the goal and the purpose thereof all in one verse if we just take the time and care to study it. And God help us by the power of the Holy Spirit actually translate it into action in our life, in our home. Next week, masters and servants or masters and slaves. And how in the world do we as 21st century people who do not, thank God, live in a slave culture? Well, how do we apply this to our life in 2021? Sovereign Lord God, our Heavenly Father, I pray that you will give everyone who hears these words inspiration and encouragement to translate these household codes into action in their life, in their child's life, uh, in their home, in their family. And I pray that you will give them the wisdom and power of your spirit and how to do so in all situations, circumstances, and details that they may have the joy of seeing this in action, how it works, how if obeyed, it all works to the health and welfare and well-being of all involved. We thank you for this special Sunday in which we commemorate the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ on our behalf. We come to you in gratitude and in worship, and I pray for a very special blessing in the soul of every believer here and watching who participates in Christ's table this morning. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen.